Well, today as I try to speak or preach, I, I really um, feel like my voice is struggling. I, I, during the worship time, I really was just shouting out there. Uh, hopefully you didn't hear me. Hopefully you heard Lila the entire time. Um, but today we're, we're in Mark chapter 2. We've started a, a new conversation. We've, we're in the gospel of Mark. And uh, if you like action-packed movies, um, if you're an action-type person, if you like to-do lists and you like seeing things get done, the Gospel of Mark is for you. It flows quick. The word immediately is used in the Gospel of Mark around 41 times. Immediately this happened, and then immediately that takes place. And yet what we learned last week, uh, sort of the, the, the title of the, the Gospel of Mark that we're using is, Come Follow Me. These were the words that Jesus gave to his first disciples, and these are the words that Jesus gives you and myself, is come follow me. And so last week we looked at what it meant to come follow Jesus, and we learned that as Jesus was so active in healing and preaching and meeting people and helping everybody's needs, Jesus had an incredible regularity and rhythm whereby he would distance himself from the crowds and get in a solitary place where he prayed alone with God. What does it mean to come follow Jesus? It means to grow and learning to be in solitude with God. Jesus taught us that last week. Um, As we go through this um, series, um, we're hoping to provide some resources. We'll be doing that. Again, we'll probably upload some of those on our Facebook members page Um, Also, perhaps in person, whereby you and I can have some resources to help us connect with God in solitude. Is it hard for you to do that? I know it's hard for me. It's busy. Um, And yet, the very most important thing we can do, I mean, right from the get-go in Mark chapter 1, is come follow me. Like, if you want to be a Jesus follower, it means connecting with God in solitude. Uh, It's beautiful. And Jesus doesn't just do it in chapter 1, and then Mark moves along to other more important sort of doctrinal things that we need to understand. No, we see the rhythm of Jesus all the way throughout the book of Mark. He's constantly pulling away to be alone with God. It's the most important thing that you can pursue in 2020. So that was last week. Um, Now we're in Mark chapter 2, and so this week it's... uh, Come follow me, like, like we're still in this rhythm of learning to follow Jesus, and come follow me, and chapter two means that of all the human needs that are out there for Jesus, that he's trying to help humanity with, of all of those needs, and of all the needs in your personal life, and the needs of your family, and the needs of your friends, which one is most important? Which need is it? And we'll learn here in chapter 2 that the greatest need of humanity is the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. The greatest need of humanity pictured for us here in this story. So basically there's a story. uh, A story here. Mark uh, is recording a story. And again, a little bit of background. This may be uh, as way of review here about our author, Mark. But I'm going to throw it in here. Uh, A little context about our author, Mark. He's writing to um, not only a a, a Greek audience, but it's a Roman audience. He's in Rome. And there needs to be a gospel that's going to get out, some some message that's going to get out to this Roman audience. And a Roman audience would have loved it fast-paced. They would have loved the action. 
Um, and so um, one of the podcasts that I've been listening to um, to, 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 to sort of help me even understand that the, stru- the structure of Scripture even more is something called the Bema Podcast. It's called the Bema Podcast. And uh, the guy's name is uh, Marty Solomon. Yeah. And so in this podcast, Marty Solomon talks about how when Mark is writing to his audience, Mark understands the four pillars of what was known as Hellenism. It was Greek and Roman culture. And so as Mark is writing into that, he understood that there are basically four major pillars that he needs his readers to really uh, connect with and understand. Um, and the first one was education. Those four pillars, they would have really prized and elevated the, sort of the, the importance of education. Therefore, Mark presents Jesus as an incredible teacher. This would have gotten the ears and the attention of the Roman reader. Uh, the second pillar was entertainment. And that's why in Mark's gospel here, it, it constantly says that the crowds were amazed at Jesus. Jesus is not an entertainer, by the way. Uh, but perhaps it was entertaining. Uh, the third pillar was competition. I think uh, someone, uh, Otis, alluded to this earlier, that, hey, let's pray for his wife, Kara, not only that she would do well in this uh, opera competition, but she would win. Mark presents Jesus as a champion, as a king of all kings, as a God like no other who wins, who looks like he's losing on the cross, but indeed rises victorious. And the fourth pillar was healthcare. Healthcare. Um, so in Mark chapter 2, um, that's what we're looking at today that Jesus is presented as an incredible healer and, and don't miss this part, forgiver. Not only just a healer of someone's physical or mental ailments, but a forgiver. And this is where the Roman reader would have said, What? I don't need a forgiver. I'm just fine. And who is this Jesus anyway that's saying that he can forgive me? Isn't that what only God can do? So let's start our story. And what I want to do with the story is I want to read uh, little portions of the story at a time. It's printed there for you, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. But I want to read just a little bit of the story, press pause, say a few words about the story, try to unpack the story. And as we do that, I feel like we're going to begin to feel the implications of the story. And what I want us to get from the story is not so much what you need to go and do about the story, but I want you to hear the good news in the story and what we learn about who Jesus really is. Uh, we'll start with verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, uh, the people heard that he had come home. And we'll pause right here. So, Capernaum is a small fishing town. It's around the Sea of Galilee, which if you've been there, I haven't. I want to go. Uh, it, it's, it's probably what we would more consider like a lake. And there are lots of little towns around this lake. People were fishermen around that lake. Um, Mark 2, uh, Jesus is just beginning his ministry. Word is beginning to spread that this guy is legit. He's an amazing teacher. He heals people. You've got to come see him. Like if he's ever speaking publicly again and it's announced or something, we gotta go. Verse 2. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached 
the word to them. This place was packed out. What's going on in the story? Jesus is in someone's home. You can think about it. Some evening, and, that, and we don't, Twitter wasn't around, you know, Insta's not around. So how did word spread? Literally word of mouth. Literally word of mouth. Jesus is beginning to get very popular. Someone is hosting Jesus in their home, and he's going to be teaching that night. And it says it's packed. Um, things are really going great. Jesus is on point. He's, he's, he's God, after all. He's teaching great. And then the story really gets turned upside down. Verse 3. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Okay, now first of all, tremendous care. You want to know who your friends are? Your friends are people who care for you when you're not at your best. Right? We know that. But again, try to align yourselves with people and friends in 2020 uh, with people who really care about you. This is what these friends are doing. They really care uh, about uh, this, this person. Now, maybe these same people that are caring for this paralyzed person, I want you to be thinking about with me in this story, this narrative. Perhaps, and most likely, they knew this guy. They knew this guy in Capernaum. Perhaps, I don't know, the text doesn't say, but um, some scholars sort of recommend that daily they were probably helping carry this man out to a certain street corner where he could beg before they went fishing. The point is they knew, most likely, they knew this paralyzed man. He wasn't a stranger to them. And the thing we should um, pause on here too, when we see the word paralyzed, first century ancient Near Eastern culture would have understood that if someone was paralyzed or someone was uh, depressed or someone was... Uh, lame, unable to walk, deaf, any of these things going on, they would have thought that you did something bad in your, you know, in your life somewhere. You've sinned so horrifically that you deserve it. And God is simply punishing you. That's why you're paralyzed. It sounds quite karmaic, doesn't it? Uh, and I would even contend, not only would this be the first century Near Eastern mindset, this would be in other parts of our world today. That there is a notion, there's a teaching, there's a thought that if you play your cards right with God, and if you do the right stuff, you will have a blessed life. You will never have suffering. Life is going to be so good. And when life gets hard and challenging, and you begin to doubt God, it's perhaps because you haven't been a good girl or a good boy. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what Jesus is teaching. It's not the gospel. Yet, what I'm trying to say is, when we read paralyzed man, that's what the first century audience would have thought. Oh, he's paralyzed because God is punishing him. Who, who should even dare touch this guy and get close to him or help him? Yet, yet uh, they bring him, don't they? They bring him close to Jesus. John chapter 9, using this um, will be helpful from another gospel writer, John. John chapter 9, even Jesus' disciples, it says of them. As Jesus went along, Jesus saw a blind man who was blind from birth. His disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, neither this man or his parents sinned. But this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
Jesus is shaping your understanding, my understanding of suffering. It's mysterious. It's not because you've done some horrific sin, therefore, you're suffering. The story, the grand story, which we know, which is recorded for us in the book of Genesis, there's our our forefather and mother, Adam and Eve, who recklessly falls right into sin. And Jesus is teaching his disciples that, you know, hey, looking back on that story, sin entered the story. And when it did, all hell broke loose. All hell broke loose. Everything got corrupted. All the lees, if you will, got corrupted. Things got corrupted politically, socially, economically, sexually. All the lees are totally messed up. And so uh, sin and suffering... Uh, what we experience, and, and even the, our creation experiences. When you, when you think about floods, when you think about fires, when you think about earthquakes, all of those things. Romans chapter 8, another writer in the New Testament, Paul, is saying that the creation longs. It cries out because of its suffering. When sin entered the story, not only was humanity uh, corrupted and broken, but creation itself. And so Jesus' kingdom being started, Jesus coming into earth as God's representative is on a mission to redeem and restore not only our physical ailments, but the creation itself. Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, that they would have a Messiah. Ding, 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 ding. Key word. If you're first century audience and you hear that word Messiah, you would know that it was attached to prophetic writers like Isaiah. And Isaiah chapter 35 said, You will see the glory of the Lord. Therefore, be strong. Therefore, don't fear. Your God will come to you. He will come and save you. When He comes, meaning when Jesus arrives on the scene, He will open the eyes of the blind. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. And the mute tongue will shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams of the desert. Back to our story. Verse 4. Since they could not get him, the paralyzed person, to Jesus because of the crowd. You get in the picture how packed it was? There's so many people there. Now later on in the story, we find out that they have a lot of room for this man. Yet right now, quite Curiously, there's no room for him to get in. Have you ever been there before? You ever been to a place where you were made to feel like you don't belong here? We ain't got room for you. Watch what Jesus does that allows them to, interestingly, end up having room for this man. So, there's a large crowd there, um, and basically... They're not letting him in, and perhaps one of the reasons they're not letting him in is, hey, uh, Jesus is teaching. (laughs) It's really important. Um, These are scribes, these are Pharisees, these are the religious elite. Um, Don't be bringing anybody uh, up in here because it's like Jesus is teaching. We need to sit up straight and, um, well, uh, let's read on in verse 4. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the man um, on the mat that the man was lying on. 
Did you just hear what happened? There's no room for the, for, for the man to get in. It's so crowded. So they creatively, who those four people, they creatively go up on top of the roof. In Palestine, in that first century, there would have been a set of stairs on the outside of a house like that. Some of our homes in San Francisco, it's more like for fire reasons, but we have that. Uh, they would have had like a rooftop deck. It would have been a flat place. The roof architecturally would have been branches or sticks with some earth, grass, sun-dried. Gives you this sort of hard feel or tiles, it was, it was told. These four people, watch what they do creatively. They, they go up there. They go up there. Now, I'm just curious. I'm a curious person. You're inside the home that night. Wouldn't you and I start like seeing stuff like pebbles, like like little branches, like 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 what is what is going on? Think, be in the story right now. What what, what would you have been? Jesus had to have been smiling. Jesus, who didn't even put them up to it. It wasn't like a hey, let's plan. Hey, let's come over here. Here's the whiteboard session. Here's what you're gonna do. You do this. You do that. No. The spontaneity. We mentioned earlier that, that worship is spontaneous. Faith is that way. They, guys, they go up on top of the roof. Come on, it's funny. It's, it's creative. Um, it, it's amazing what happens here. Um, and I'm also guessing that inside that room, they're waiting to hear Jesus condemn this man. They're waiting. They sort of are anticipating how the story is going to go. You, you, you watch when this paralyzed person gets in front of Jesus. Watch what's going to happen. Why would they have thought that? As we tried to say earlier, they would have thought that because that's what they've been taught. That's what they've been taught. You're paralyzed, therefore this is God's punishment. The paralyzed man himself would have been thinking this, would he not? Tremendous drama happening right now in this story. And for those people sitting in that room, (laughs) verse 5, it says, when Jesus saw their faith. Wow. I love scripture for several reasons. One reason here is it doesn't say Jesus saw their creativity. They were creative. Jesus is applauding. Jesus is blessing. Jesus is honoring. Jesus is saying to come follow me means to have faith. And true faith isn't just going to Jesus when you need some physical thing to be blessed. Coming to Jesus, following Jesus, having faith to go to Jesus means you're coming for spiritual restoration, physical restoration. I just need it all. Give it all to me, Jesus. You see me, you know me, everything. Give it, give it to me. Jesus saw their faith. Verse 5. Wow, look at this. He said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. This would have shocked the entire place. Total silence or murmuring. or Who knows what would have gone on in that room? They would have been shocked. Did Jesus just call him that intimate word, child or son? Wow. Is Jesus saying that his identity goes deeper 
than that he's a paralyzed person? This Jesus sees people in a way that we don't see people. Time must have just stood still. He says, your sins. These are the things that you and I think, um, well, maybe that's why God hates me. Maybe that's why I had a bad day yesterday. Maybe that's why I'm in a bad season or chapter of my story right now. It's because of my sin. Once again, let Jesus reshape your thinking of who God is. That's not why you're in a bad season of your life. Maybe you've made some bad choices. Maybe I've made some bad choices, but God isn't punishing you in that way. And by the way, when he says your sins are forgiven, I mean, don't you find that extraordinary? What sort of should have been the first words to the the paralyzed man? Do you want to be healed? Or hey, you're healed. Like, look at the story. The very first thing that Jesus says to him is your sins are forgiven. It's bizarre, isn't it? It's okay in Bible study or in Bible reading to be reading things and go, I don't understand. That that, that, that looks a little bizarre. That's a good learning moment when when we come across things like that in Scripture. Just to press pause and go, what in the world is going on in this story? Your sins are forgiven, he says. I mean, who does Jesus think he is after all? And his friends in the room must have thought, Jesus, you got it all wrong. (laughs) You got it all wrong. The priority can't be that this man's sins be forgiven. The priority's got to be that he, he, he can't walk. And yet Jesus very gently, I believe, is wanting to teach that audience and this audience in San Francisco that humanity's greatest need is forgiveness of sins. And so uh, that's, that's the bad news, folks. The bad news is we are sin sick. I don't even know how to gently sort of package it any differently. It is what could be called bad news. We are sin sick, uh, perhaps far worse than you thought you were. Perhaps in a way that I don't even want people to know about me. That's how deep and how bad the bad news really is. Yet, good news, by the way, that word is called gospel. That's what the gospel is coming into. See, one reason perhaps the gospel may make no sense to you or a friend or a family member is the gospel means nothing. The gospel is sort of just arbitrarily out there. I mean, good news for what? Good news into the bad news. Good news that Mark is writing about here is good news for our sin sickness. Good news that God himself in the person of Jesus would be a perfect representative for you and for me and all sinners. That's good news. You'll read later on in chapter 2 of Mark. We're not covering it right now, but as you read it later, Jesus will end up telling um, the listeners, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. And it's Irenaeus, a somewhat famous Christian historian, who writes in the first century, if you can get your hands on some of his stuff floating around the web, I mean, think about it, of 
a historian writing in the first century that now we can get our hands on. His name's Irenaeus. Uh, I'm going to give a quote here of his. He says, How can sins be rightly remitted unless the very one against whom one has sinned grants the pardon? It's against God that we've sinned. So as Jesus is saying, my son or my child, your sins are forgiven. I don't know, at this point, maybe I'll ask, who in the story do you identify with? As I was reading this last week and this week, who is it that you identify with? Maybe you identify most with this person on the map. You've never imagined God saying to you, my daughter, my son, your sins are forgiven. Verse 6 and 7. Some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Blasphemy, by the way, was punishable by death. Right? So if you fast forward the gospel of Mark and you sort of get near the end of the gospel there and you see that Jesus is about to be um, arrested, and, uh, crucified, and, and murdered, you begin now in chapter 2 to begin to see some of the reasons whereby he would be accused. Jesus, you will be eventually killed because you have just equated yourself to do something that only God can do. And that's basically what the Gospel of Mark is getting around to, is who is this Jesus? Do you ever wonder that? Your friends probably are wondering that. In fact, they're probably being informed by a lot of other sources besides Mark chapter 2 regarding who this Jesus is. Verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit, in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. I find that amazing. I'm not surprised. I mean, when we sang earlier that Jesus' eye is on the sparrow, yes, Jesus knows the needs of the sparrows and your needs, but Jesus' eye is on all of us, not to make us feel like, but a shepherd, a creator, a God who knows me all the way down to the bottom. His eye is his eyes on me. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, and he asked them a question. Now, they don't respond to the question. They don't respond to the question. Why are you thinking these things, Jesus asked them. He wants them to reflect. He wants you to reflect. Jesus calls them, you and I, into a reflective space. It's sort of like when your mom or dad asked you, perhaps growing up, like I remember them asking me, Shall we, send you, um, shall we send you into a quiet time? Like, is it time for a timeout? They didn't want an answer back. They already knew the answer. The question was, was giving you space to think about it. Jesus is wanting them to reflect. Uh, therefore, he asked them another question. Verse 9, which is easier, he says, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and take your mat and walk. Jesus' point is basically, anyone can say your sins are forgiven. 
But if I actually say to this man, get up and walk, I'm going to now all of a sudden prove that I can give you a twofer. I can not only forgive sins, but, or rather, and I can heal him. Verse 10, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, and by the way, let me ask it again. What difference, honestly, would it have made if Jesus had healed the man, but had not been able to forgive his sins? What difference would it have made? If Jesus is in fact claiming to be God, and only God can forgive sins, he's got to do both. So the drama, the drama is rising in our story again. The drama is rising um, Verse 11, uh, verse 11, he says, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Now, this is a dramatic moment because, again, if you're in that, um, if you're in that home that night, what if the man doesn't get up and go? <laughs> I mean, think, think about it, right? Like, you're in there. And at this point, if you're an intellectual, you're probably thinking, mm-hmm, watch this. Jesus thinks he's God. He's a lunatic. He's a liar. He's quite interesting, but a little ridiculous. You're an intellectual. You're sort of watching this thing, hoping this thing actually falls apart. And that he will be um, revealed as a total fraud. Notice the drama. It's there. It's, it's got to be real heavy in, in the room. If he doesn't do it, uh, he, he indeed is a fraud. Watch what happens. Muscles, tendons, arteries, nerves begin to come alive. This man hadn't felt things that he's beginning to feel. He got up, verse 12, he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. I mean, it seems pretty polite of a guy, doesn't it? He just gets up and walks out. I mean, wouldn't you have been at least tempted to talk everyone else in the room? Like, stand up for Jesus at least and say, see there, see who you're messing with, or... He walks out. He walks out. And it's not recorded for us here by Mark, but there must have been a celebration in the front yard. There must have been a party. Sort of like Luke chapter 15, when when the lost person actually comes back home. And the father who runs to that child says that intimate word, my son, my child, you have returned. And yet others in that same story would have been there with a scowl on their faith going, this can't be true. Who is this God who does this and who has mercy towards sinners like that? It's Jesus. It's Jesus who does this. What about the four people that are still up on top of the roof, looking down through the hole? I mean, it's not recorded, but what do they do? I mean, they may have jumped right down through the hole, and I don't know. Maybe they came back down the stairs. But had to have been a celebration. Had to have been a party. Had to have been. And that man, my gosh, he's, he's, did he go home? I have a feeling he walked around 
the Sea of Galilee. Several times. I have a feeling he was putting on a show and tell for people. Look what Jesus has done. There's a big party going on, I'm guessing. Let's end with a, with a question of response. Who, who do you see yourself as in this story? Who is it? Who are you in this story? Where would you have been that night? First century Capernaum. Jesus is coming to teach and you're invited to come. Let's go see Jesus. It's packed. Maybe you would have brought a friend with you. Maybe you can identify most with the man on the mat in the story. Thinking, does anybody see me? Does anybody care about me? If someone could actually get me close to someone who could help me, that'd be great. Henry Nouwen, in a book called Discernment, Reading the Signs of Daily Life, says, Waiting patiently is suffering through the present moment, tasting it to the fullest, in the belief that something hidden there will manifest itself to us. That's what it means to come follow Jesus, that if you are feeling like you are this person on the mat, and we know that being on the mat doesn't have to mean that you're paralyzed. You can have a lot of other meanings But come and follow Jesus means too, in the midst of the suffering and the pain that you're even going through right now, is to know that God has something. I don't see it. And against all hope, I'm trusting and I'm hoping. Some of you in this story may identify with the people on the roof. I think that would have been me up there. Just doing something. Just let's cut a hole. Let's kick it in. Let's come on. I got friends who are in pain. And I don't know about you, you probably got friends that are in pain. And I weep about it. I wrestle with God about it. I don't understand it. I cry out, God, are you listening? Do you see the injustice? Do you care? I mean, these are the, these are the prayers of the Psalms. Maybe you would have been there thinking, I'm not sin sick. I don't need a healer. I'm good. I'm doing pretty good right now. The challenge for each of us is to see ourselves as sin sick in need of God's forgiveness. And if we've experienced that joy, the Bible says joy comes into our lives. It's joy. It's not experiencing forgiveness as though it's some little bullet point that God is forgiving. Hmm, glad I understand that one. Check. Experiencing God's forgiveness is to say, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I've sinned in ways I don't even perhaps know and ways that I've intentionally But Lord, have mercy. Please forgive a sinner like me. And to experience God's powerful, powerful, personal forgiveness. That's what this man would have been talking about also. This paralyzed man who could now walk is 
hey, yeah, I'm walking. And yeah, you've seen that I haven't been walking all these years, but you want to know the real story? Jesus told me that my sins were forgiven. The other challenge for us in this story is to just ask that question, how has Jesus astonished you? I mean, that's how the story ends, right? That's how the story ends here, verse 12. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Question for you, table church. Question for you is, what are you amazed about? What is it? Who is it? I love God, I'm going to close with this, but I love God's part in this story, and I love our part in this story. God's part of the story is what? He's a healer. Only God can heal, and he's still in the business of healing. Only God can forgive. Our part. Our part. How has Jesus astonished you and given you reasons to glorify God personally? And then how is Jesus calling you and I to be active in bringing our friends to Jesus? Because Jesus is the one who can help them. We're no one's morality cop. We're no one's savior. We're no one able to forgive and set someone right with God in a right relationship with God. Only Jesus can do that. And we're called to be a group. The church is called to gather like this and celebrate the wonderful things that that Jesus has done for us. And then the church is called to go out and minister to others and call others to, hey, come, come meet this Jesus. Come see this Jesus who can minister to you, who can heal you and forgive you. Let's pray that. Father, God, help us. Help us see ourselves as sin-sick, yet healed and forgiven by you, Lord Jesus. Help us have eyes to, to see others in need of you, Lord Jesus. Others right around us. Help us see them. Help us bring our friends to you so that they too might be healed. They too might receive forgiveness. Jesus, we desire to follow you, and it's only by your grace that we can enter into this journey with you. So teach us. Teach us. And we celebrate and we uh, are filled with gratitude at all that you are. And we pray in your name, King Jesus. Amen. 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 Amen.